The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Uh, you know, you uh, everybody know what the word Chinook means? It's the water drying or snow melting winds. And it says here, let me read you that thing again here. It says, um, he, uh, he casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. And so that's what the Chinook winds are. So you have all this snow and all of a sudden there's nothing left but water. And uh, so that's just one of the little things in the Bible that here uh, the psalmist is writing this all these thousands of years ago and observing the handy works of the Lord. And he puts it into uh, poetry for us and we're still reading it all this time later wonderful we're going to be in leviticus 21 verses 1 through 24 today it's entitled suitable for the priesthood okay let me get to that passage and while i'm getting there i'm going to start this sermon with more stutters than i normally do i know i stutter a lot but it's going to be a little more and it's purposeful okay so please just understand that i'm saying this for the people online too just so you know i've got to make a point all right, so we're in uh, Leviticus 21, verses 1 through 24. <clears throat> Verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for the dead among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. Also his virgin sister who is near to him, who had no husband, for her he made defile himself. Otherwise he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself. They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes." Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. Nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him, 
I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. Nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame, who has a marred face or any limb too long. A man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf. Or a man who has a defect in his eye, or eczema, or scab, or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. When I was a kid, mom and dad would take us up to Massachusetts every year for a summer vacation. It is a beautiful spot out in the remote western mountains, and it has the smallest township in the state person-wise, but it is spread out over many, many miles of beautiful forests, hills, and mountains. Right in the center of the town, I mean right at the very center of the town, the heart of it, is where the church is. It's only open for a couple of months each summer, and it hires the summer preacher from elsewhere. One year, they hired a person who really wanted to preach. He had the heart and the desire to do so. You had to know that this was the truth, because he also had the single worst stutter that I or anyone else in attendance had ever heard. It was literally painful to listen to. He would get stuck on a T, and it would grow to the point where his face would literally contort. And it wasn't an occasional stick. It happened constantly. Everyone knew the word he was trying to say, and certainly everyone wanted to simply yell it out and get on with the ever-lengthening sermon. Would we have the 2 p.m. baseball game at the Austin Farm? There's only two hours left, and he's only done 10 sentences. The sermon is 25 pages. Baseball? We may not make it to dinner. We might not make it to breakfast tomorrow. It was really brutal, but people were polite. Needless to say, he did not get a re-invite the following year. It may have been better if everyone made light of it and actually yelled out the word that he was trying to state. Maybe it would have helped him if we participated, and maybe not. There may have been a filled noose at the parsonage the next morning. It's hard to say, but it was a sad and heartbreaking thing. I think about that guy often. He really wanted to do what he was wholly unsuited to do. I feel that way as well. I think I can type a pretty good sermon, but I know my delivery is not Joel Osteen quality, something I'm actually grateful for. We have a small church filled with the very finest of people. I would miss that if I were eloquent and famous. But Sunday afternoon video editing makes me grateful for several things. I am grateful for what is called cut and move, and I'm grateful for what is called morph cut. Cut and move means that I can simply cut out my blunders. And morph cut means that I can morph the two images into one so that nobody can tell that there was a cut and move. That's what I do. I I tell you I have a stressful Sunday afternoon and I want to get out of here. Please don't talk to me. It's because I've got hours of editing my blunders. Hidako comes home and the dogs are barking. I can't hear a thing. And it drives me absolutely up a wall because it's very precise work and it's a lot of work because you know my propensities. Watching or listening to one of my edited versions, you might think, hey, that guy's not that bad. The folks in attendance know otherwise, though. And for their patience, I am weakly grateful. But this poor guy's sermons could never have been edited. There would simply have been nothing left after editing. Our text first comes from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 
having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In Christ we are accepted. This doesn't mean that we are all perfect, and it doesn't mean that we are all qualified to do anything we wish. As much as my heart breaks for that guy in the little church on the mountain, he was not qualified to preach. It's not that he was unqualified because of his defect being unacceptable to God. It is that he was not acceptable to the ears of his audience. If he was a sound follower of the Lord, I can assure you that the Lord was well pleased with his faith to try. I'm grateful for this. I don't need to be a Joel Osteen or an Adrian Rogers, and a large church would mean that I didn't have the blessed relationship I have with those in a small church. He has fitted all things according to his wisdom. When that wisdom coincides with our desires, that is the sweet spot, and that is the spot that I feel I'm in every single morning when I wake up. Be sure that if you are in Christ, the Lord has accepted you, even if others don't. There is only favor streaming from him because of who you are. That's the blessing of being a follower of Jesus. It is the message of scripture. Today, we will look back on what it was like before his coming, and we will look at why it was that way. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is priestly moral restrictions. It's verses 1 through 9. Verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, The opening words are different than are normally given. Usually it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Here it says, And the Lord said to Moses. The Hebrew words for spoke and said carry essentially the same thought of conveying a message, but spoke is more concise. One commentary on the difference says you choose daber, which is speak, if you only need to tell people what to do. But amar, which is said, if the task is so complex that it requires a partnership and people working together. And again, the same word follows in the next words. Verse 1 continues, speak to the priests. That is incorrect. It says, say to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. None shall defile himself for the dead among his people. The Lord uses the same word, Amar, directing Moses to say to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. He twice repeats the same word, but the phrase he uses is unique to the five books of Moses. Six other times it says, the sons of Aaron, the priests. Only here it reverses that and it says, the priests, the sons of Aaron. This rewording of the phrase is intended to relay the truth that they are priests because they are sons of Aaron and not because of their own merit. Aaron was called by the Lord and he did nothing to merit the call. As the book of Hebrews notes, there was no oath rendered in their priestly call. Unlike Jesus, who was made a priest based on an oath recorded in the Psalms, like Aaron, who was called apart from any personal merit, this same thought transfers to all of his sons. These words are to be conveyed to all of the priests who descend from Aaron. The instructions are given solely for them in this chapter. So far, the laws for holiness of the entire community have been given, and which pertain to all, both priest and layman. But those who administer the law are set apart to the Lord in a unique way, and therefore additional requirements are to be laid upon them. The first and thus chief requirement is that verse 1 continues, none shall defile himself for the dead among his people. The last chapter ended in a seemingly odd manner. It reintroduced the thought which said, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. As I said then, mediums and wizards were to be stoned because they infringed upon a realm which belongs to God alone. People who practiced these things consulted the dead on behalf of the living. Instead of this, the people were to consult those who mediated the law on behalf of the people, meaning the priests. And the priests were to remain completely separate from the defilement of death. In this verse, the Hebrew does not say for the dead. Instead, it reads, for a soul, do not be defiled. The idea here is that of a dead person, however. When a soul leaves the body, 
You are not mourning for the body that's laying there. You're mourning for the soul that is departed. The body without a soul is defiled, and it will transmit that defilement. No priest was to touch a dead body. Enter the house where a dead person was. Help prepare or carry a dead body, and so on. Such things defiled a person, and they became unclean for seven days, which then required certain rites of purification for their uncleanness. The reason for this, above all, is that death is the result of sin. It is the greatest penalty for sin, and it is the final identifying mark that a person bore sin. The law has already said that the man who does the things of the law will live by them. Each death was another testimony to the fact that no person had done the things of the law, and they suffered the just consequences of their failure. In death, the mortal body began its rapid process of corruption and decay. This sign of the fallen world was a defiling marker for any who came in contact with it. Priests were expected to administer the law of life, at least life as far as the law could provide. Every sacrifice that was detailed in the first half of the book of Leviticus was an anticipatory type of death which foreshadowed the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is he who, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, swallowed up death in victory. For the priests to be defiled by death, it would indicate that their mediation was tainted. Thus, they were prohibited from the same freedoms granted to the lay people. For them, however, gracious exceptions were made. Verse 2, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother. The scholar Kyle states that in the case of death among members of the family or household, defilement was not to be avoided on the part of the priest as the head of the family. This is actually an insufficient explanation. No exception is given if a slave died in the house, which would by default render someone unclean, but that would have been just as unavoidable. This defilement due to a near relative is obviously given out of God's kindness to the priest's humanity. It should be noted that this is the second of only three times in the Bible where the mother is mentioned before the father. Several reasons probably exist for this subtle change. The first is the extremely close bond between a child and the mother. This would go hand in hand then with the already seen kind nature of God towards the priest's humanity. It extends even to the thought of Christ on the cross who took the time to care for his mother before he gave up his breath. Secondly, as the son's qualifications for the priesthood depend on his mother's character, as will be seen in verse 7, the mother is identified before the father, who by his nature as a priest makes the child qualified for the priesthood as well. This again points to Christ, whose mother had necessary qualifications which needed to be highlighted in order for him to qualify as our high priest. Chief among them, he needed to be born of a virgin. Further, as Christ's human father was via adoption, there is a distance there which brings the nearness of Mary closer to him than to Joseph. In the end, naming the mother first subtly looks forward to Christ as much as anything else. In all of the mentioned family members, there is a nearness considered in these exceptions. It allowed the priest to mourn over his dead, close relatives. It is a nearness which extends to a certain point, however, and no further. Verse 3, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband, for her he may defile himself. When a woman of Israel married, she went to her husband as one flesh, and she ceased being united in the unique family relationship that she once stood. Until that occurred, when she was a virgin near to him, he could defile himself for her. But upon marriage, this right and honor ended. At that time, the husband was responsible for her funeral and tending to her internment. Verse 4. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself. This is a highly debated and wholly confusing verse in the Hebrew. However, before reading what the Hebrew says, who is it that has been markedly left out of the list of people a priest can defile himself for? Wife. The wife, that's right. Here the Hebrew reads, Lo yitama ba'al ba'amav lehe chalo. No shall defile husband in his people to profane himself. To profane himself gives the sense of with respect to a marriage by which he profanes himself. 
The implicit reading of this is that a husband is not to defile himself for his wife. Scholars disagree, saying that it's obvious that as she is nearest to him of his close relatives, she is by default included. There's nothing obvious about that. The fact that the wife is not mentioned in the list completely negates that. Scholars also say that Ezekiel was specifically told to not mourn his wife, thus implying that the normal thing to do would be to mourn for a dead wife. But mourning and defilement are not the same thing, and so that can be tossed out. What is obvious is that the word Baal, or husband, is used, and it is used in conjunction with three verses which specifically leave the wife out. One would ask, though, why is a priest not permitted to defile himself for his own wife? The only answer which makes any sense is that in the death of his wife, he has profaned himself already. According to Genesis 2, verse 24, the man and the woman became one flesh when they married. Therefore, there is a state of profanation which exists because of her death, and it is not to be further exacerbated by his defiling himself for her soul. And doesn't this look forward to Christ and the church? When a soul departs, there is death, but in Christ, there is no defilement. As we noted earlier, death is swallowed up in victory. But Christ had to first profane himself, taking on our sins in order for that defilement to be cleansed. He became unclean so that we might be clean. The priest in type is looking forward to Christ because he was not to defile himself for his wife, nor does Christ now defile himself for us. Cleansing occurred at the cross, and there is now no defilement because of this. Verse 5, they shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. This verse is referring to other nations' ways of expressing grief, which were seen when someone died. Verse 19.28 has already warned against these things for the lay people, and it now explicitly extends to the priests. It is certain that this is speaking of mourning for the dead, because in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, the prohibition is repeated with the words, for the dead. These things are comparable to today's customs of wearing black and so on. The priests were not to change their appearance in such outward signs of mourning because they were holy unto the Lord and were to reflect his glory at all times. Verse 6, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. This explains the reason for the prohibitions given so far. The priests were to be holy as the Lord is holy. In defiling themselves in these various ways, they would otherwise profane his name, the name which is then explicitly stated, verse 6 continues, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. The Lord, Jehovah, is their God. It is to him that their fire offerings were made. These are then explained as the bread or food of their God. The word and does not belong here. The fire offerings stand as representative of all of the offerings to the Lord. It is because they make these offerings, all pointing to Christ, that they were to be holy and to not deviate from that state. Verse 7, they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. The rules now go from contact in mourning for the dead, which defiles, to contact with the living, which could do the same. A woman who was a prostitute, even if she was reclaimed, could not become the wife of a priest. A defiled woman would be one who had lost her virginity, which in Israel would already be improper. But a priest could marry a woman not of Israel. And so this prohibition is stated so that it is understood that even if a foreigner, she was not to have been defiled. A priest was also not to marry a divorced woman. Any of these would demonstrate an unholiness which was incompatible with his position as a priest of God. Verse 8, Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. Verse 1 said, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. It appears that this is what is being referred to here. Each priest was to hold every other priest accountable for their marriages. They were to ensure that no such illegal marriage was to take place because he, along with each of them, offers the bread of your God. The priest then was to be holy, and they were to be holy to one another. And the exacting reason is again given as it has been several other times. 
It is because Jehovah is the one who sanctifies them. They were to be holy because the Lord set them apart as holy. Verse 9, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. There are no exceptions here that later Jewish traditions introduce. The words are clear and precise. If a priest's daughter became a whore, the name of her father would be profaned. In profaning his name, the name of the Lord would be profaned. There was to be no leniency for such an act. However, there is a dispute as to what being burned with fire means. Does it mean that she was to first be stoned and then burned, or was she to be put on a heap of sticks and burned alive? It goes unstated here. Either way, she was toast, or actually she was barbecue. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you shall be holy as I am holy. To this precept, you shall be true. You shall follow my word and emulate me. You shall not profane the name of your God. You shall not defile yourselves before me. You shall walk circumspectly on the path you trod. You shall be holy for I am holy. I have redeemed you from a past, a life of sin. I have called you unto holiness. Yes, to be holy. You were destined for hell. You were all but done in and I saved you. Now you shall follow after me. Our second thought today is requirements of the high priest. It's verses 10 through 15. Verse 10, he who is the high priest among his brethren on whose head the anointing oil was poured and who is consecrated to wear the garments shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. This is the first use of Hakohen Hagadol or the priest, the great one. He is distinguished by the office of high priest. This is explicitly noted in mentioning the anointing oil which was poured on him and who alone was allowed to wear the garments of the high priest. These two things in particular distinguish him as Israel's high priest. First and foremost, he is commanded to not uncover his head. Specifically, this means to allow his hair to be loosed, meaning unkempt. This was a sign of mourning, and he was never to demonstrate such an attitude. He was first, foremost, and always to be holy to the Lord. Further, he was not to tear his clothes. To do so was an indication of distress or anguish. As the intercessor between the Lord and his people, his conduct in one of these ways would give either the sense of utter despair to the people or that he was impugning the Lord's fairness, justice, or ability to control any given situation. It is ironic that this first command to the high priest of Israel was openly disobeyed in the presence of the Lord who gave the command. Here's what it says in Matthew 26. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? Jesus was placed under oath by the high priest, and because of the position of the high priest, he was bound by the law of Moses, which he gave to Israel to tell the truth. He did, and therefore he remained without guilt in the matter. And yet the high priest was guilty of violating a precept of the very law which he said Jesus was guilty of violating. There is an irony that runs through the Bible that is truly amazing when it's put in its proper light. Verse 11, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother. To go near a dead body means to enter a house or other area where a dead body was. He was not to come near any such dead person in contact defilement. The anointing oil on him was of more importance to keep free from defilement than to even defile himself for his own father or mother. His call to the office of high priest was one bestowed upon him by the Lord. And so to the Lord alone was his full, continuous, and pure devotion to be fixed. Verse 12, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary. There's a dispute as to the meaning of go out of the sanctuary. Most scholars take this as meaning for the sake of a funeral, mourning, or some other disaster or sorrow which would take him from his duties. 
Others say that he was literally never, ever to leave the sanctuary because he was the high priest and to the Lord his life was dedicated. It seems much more likely that this is speaking of going out of the sanctuary in abandonment of his duties in order to grieve, but that he was not restricted to the sanctuary at all times. This would then be explained by the next words. Verse 12 continues, nor profane the sanctuary of his God. This means that if he were defiled at some point, he could not enter the sanctuary until his time of purification was complete. He could not enter the sanctuary if he had never left the sanctuary. And so it seems that the first clause is speaking not of at all times, but at times referred to in other verses. And this is all the more obvious when the high priest got married as all men do. In his marriage union, he would contract defilement according to the chapter on discharges. If you remember, a person who has an issue of semen becomes defiled. This would certainly not be something that he would do while in the sanctuary. Therefore, it cannot be that the high priest was to never leave the sanctuary. Verse 12 continues, For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. These words can be translated in two major ways. The first is what I just read you. The consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. Thus, the anointing oil is being used as representative of the high priestly office as it was in verse 10, along with his other garments. The second translation would say, for crown, anointing oil is upon him. The word here is netzer. It's the same word used to describe the golden crown which adorned the high priest's turban and which can also mean consecration. Thus, both the crown and the oil are being used as representative of the office. As the golden crown was engraved with the words Kadosh Yehovah or Holy to Yehovah, the final words of this verse, Ani Yehovah or I am Yehovah, seem to point to both being referred to. It's hard to be dogmatic, and no matter which, the office of high priest anticipates the greater office of Christ as high priest. The oil of the anointing points to the prophetic influence of the Spirit resting upon Christ, and the crown points to Christ's kingly status. Thus, he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Verse 13, and he shall take a wife in her virginity. If the high priest were to marry a woman who was not a virgin, it would profane his seed. In this, he was a type of Christ to come. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes the following, For I have betrothed you to one husband, meaning Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In each way, the type was to lead to the antitype. He was to be an Old Testament example of the greater high priest to come. Verse 14, A widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot, These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. These prohibitions are given against the words of the previous verse. You shall do this, you shall not do this. There was no room for reinterpreting the law in another way. There was no wiggle room given for this man. Verse 15, nor shall he profane his posterity among his people, for I the Lord sanctify him. What this means is that the high priest was not to enter into such a forbidden marriage because it would then render his children, born of such a union, ineligible for the privileges of the priesthood. The Lord had sanctified him, and he was to maintain that line of sanctity through holy offspring. However, in Christ's line, women of these categories are seen, such as Tamar, Rahav, Ruth, and Bathsheba, among others. Thus, the regulations here are symbolic only. True defilement does not occur from such unions. It is the picture of Christ being betrothed to the chaste virgin to which these verses point. In the end, regardless of one's genealogy, all defilement ceases in Jesus Christ. This is even true with the first high priest who had to be sanctified in order to enter the priestly line in the first place. A high priest, perfect in all ways, one who is consecrated to mediate for us, and he is qualified to do so for eternal days. He is our Lord. He is the Lord Jesus. Unto himself a spotless bride he has taken, a chaste virgin, beautiful and pure. Someday our departure we will be a-makin. Until then we patiently endure. But soon we shall be off to the sanctuary of God. For now we await the time when unto him we go. But our feet are ready with the gospel we are shod as we direct others on the correct path to follow. Our third thought today, defects among the priests. It's verses 16 through 24. Verse 16, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, We now return to the usual means of address where the Lord speaks the bear to the people. In the previous section, the people were to do something in conjunction with the word of the Lord in order to not become defiled. Here the people are designated as defiled by the word of the Lord. They need do nothing to be so. It is simply the way it is. Verse 17, speak to Aaron saying, no man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. If the sacrifices which were offered to the Lord were to be without blemish, how much more should those who make them be without defect? The word mum or defect is now introduced. Most of the 21 times it is seen will be in the books of Moses. It indicates a blemish which can be either physical or moral. The spiritual nature of the sacrifices looked to the person and work of Christ. The same is true with the spiritual nature of the priests. This was seen in exacting detail in the description of their garments and in their ordination. These words now continue to expand on that thought. Throughout the time of the Aaronic priesthood, any who was otherwise qualified to serve, but who then showed a defect as named here, would thus be deemed unacceptable to serve. The entire time of the law, the people were being shown only types and shadows of Christ to come. Thus, until he came, the same standards and expectations were required in their priests as would be seen in their true priest. This is the lesson here in order for Israel to understand the holiness of the Lord. Verse 18, for any man who has a defect shall not approach a man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long. These words now begin to list what defect of the previous verse means. One who is ever or blind was disqualified. The word comes from the word or or skin. It is as if skin is pulled over the eye, causing it to not see. Such would be disqualified. Next is the piseach, or lame. The word is introduced here, and it comes from a primitive root, which means to hop. One who is lame will appear to make small hops to correct his defect. Such was disqualified to minister before the Lord. The haram, or marred, was also disqualified. The word is used to indicate a city, which is to be dedicated to God through destruction, Thus, it would indicate a flattened nose, a destroyed face, a mutilated ear, something like that. These such appearances disqualified their making offerings to the Lord. And then it is noted that sarah, or deformed. This word is seen for the first of but three times. It means to extend or stretch out. Thus, it is anything superfluous or deformed. It would certainly indicate things like extra fingers and toes, long extended arms, legs, etc., Verse 19, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand. Included also were those with the foot or the hand which was broken. The word is shever, and it indicates a break, fracture, a crushing, and so on. In ancient times, when someone broke a bone, it would often mean that he would be deformed permanently. And so whether born this way or he became this way, the defect rendered him unsuitable to minister before Jehovah. Although not a priest, one such person was Saul, the first king of Israel's son. He was broken in this manner as a child and remained lame throughout his life. This is recorded in 2 Samuel 4. Here's what it says. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Verse 20, or as a hunchback or a dwarf or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or as a eunuch. The geben or hunchback is a word found only here. It is from an unused root meaning to be arched or contracted. And so it would indicate a hunchback or a crookback, so on. However, another possibility is that it is speaking of an arch over the eyes and thus a neural browed person who resembles an ape. This is a minority opinion though. After him is the duck or dwarf. This word comes from the cock or crushed. By implication, it is something small or very thin. It's a very little thing. So you think of a dwarf. Next comes another unique word to the Bible, the tebalu be'ano or defect in eye. The word comes from a word meaning to mix or to confuse. This is probably speaking of cataracts or some other confusion of colors within the eye, which is deemed defective. Anyone with garav or eczema was out. This word is seen for the first time here, and it will only be seen once more in Leviticus and once in Deuteronomy. It comes from a root meaning to scratch. Thus, it is an itchy affliction of the skin. 
no itchy people may serve. <laughs> Likewise, the yellow pet or scab renders a person unclean. It is an eruptive disease which will be seen here and in the next chapter, and then it will be history. And lastly, the eunuch was excluded. The term is meroach ashek. Both words are found only here in the Bible. Together they mean crushed stones and thus testicles. And I know that's very painful to even say. The idea here is that any such defect would render a person unsuitable to minister to the Lord. These verses here have caused much consternation to people in the world and questions abound on Christian question and answer sites as to why the Lord disqualified such people. The questions inevitably go on to ask if these things continue on today. I've read a thousand questions like this and I've had a thousand emailed to me. The first has been answered by me already. These things were given to point us to the true and perfect high priest, Christ Jesus. The second will be answered before we finish today. It should be noted, though, that even in the Old Testament, a perfect appearance was no indication of a perfect person. The same word, mum, or blemish, was used to describe Absalom, the son of David, as being perfect in his appearance, having no blemish. And yet, he was a loser who ended life by being buried beneath a pile of stones, signifying the loser life that he led. He had a moral moom, but no physical moom. But the moral moom outweighed the physical in this sense. Okay, Others with blemishes were decent people who found the Lord's favor, such as the Ethiopian eunuch Abed-Melech. That is recorded in Jeremiah 13, verses 16 through 18. Here's what it says about this guy. Go and speak to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hands of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord." So you can see that a defect is not something that the Lord is opposed to in a person, only for the typology of the priest, okay? I want everybody to understand that, but I will further define it as we go on. Verse 21, no man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. These words are given to supplement what has already been provided. Twelve name defects were given to outline the general state of who would be considered acceptable to minister before the Lord. Those twelve were only representative, however, of any and all defects not specifically mentioned. It is certain that a person missing a limb or an ear would be likewise disqualified. A deaf person would be unsuitable to minister and so on. This verse is given to demonstrate that. Twelve is the number of perfection of government in the Bible. In the priestly government, there was to be perfection. And so those 12 items were given to support this idea. Those who offered the bread of their God were to be perfect in type because the one they picture is perfect in reality. However, the restrictions on these sons of Aaron were only for drawing near to make the offerings to the Lord. They were not forbidden from assisting in other things that the priests needed to accomplish. During the second period temple times, Periodic examinations of all priests were made. If any had become disqualified, they could still perform these assistant duties. If any had become well, they could be reintroduced into the regular priesthood. But all still had the same right to receive the provisions of the priests. Verse 22, he may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy. All things given to the priests, both the most holy and the holy offerings, were acceptable for all of the priestly class, regardless of any defect. This is something that a priest who was defiled because of uncleanness could not do. And so even under the law, we see a difference between natural infirmities and moral defilement. The typology of Christ is what is important here. The rewards for maintaining that typology were bestowed upon all. This included things like wave offerings, other sacrificial portions reserved for the priest, first fruits, tithes, things laid under a ban, and so on and so on. Verse 23, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. 
To go near the veil means to perform the duties in the holy place, where the table of showbread, menorah, and altar of incense was located. Each of these was serviced at specific intervals by the priests. To approach the altar means to assist in the sacrifices there, including the daily and other regularly scheduled sacrifices. For them to perform those duties would profane his sanctuaries. The word is plural to indicate that each was its own type of holy place with its own typological significance as it points to Jesus Christ. For a defective person to serve there would then violate the typology. Verse 24 finishes with these words, And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel. The words here are in fulfillment of those given in verse 1, but they go further. Not only were the words imparted to Aaron and his sons, but to all the children of Israel. This is important because it was to tell Israel that all people were to know how the priests were to conduct their affairs. There was not a code for the priests which they could alone manipulate. There was a set code that the people could see being adhered to or being violated. The priestly class, in this sense at least, was not above the common people. And this is true with the requirements for elders and deacons today. I'm typing up the daily commentaries on the pastoral epistles right now, and I'm learning more than I've ever learned in my life, even though I've typed up commentaries on them in the past. And I want you to know that if you are not reading these, you should be reading them because this applies to every single church on this planet and where you should attend and where you shouldn't. But it applies to these people today. The church hierarchy does not decide who is qualified. God does. From there, the people have the right to see those qualifications being lived out in their leaders. How unlike the way the affairs of larger denominations are run today. We have people that are not authorized to be ordained, ordained all throughout all of these major denominations, throughout them. It is in violation of God's word. His word is written, and we must either be obedient to that, or we might as well just not even bother. We might as well not even bother saying the name Jesus, or I love you, God, or anything like that. Because it is a violation of what he has given us. And we do not decide it. God does. How unlike Catholicism, which secrets away perverts from public and congressional scrutiny. Right? All of these things come into bearing when we deal with the word of God. Earlier I noted that parts of this passage have caused consternation among people. This is both within and without the church. People who want to show how bad the God of the Bible is will come here and type up ridiculous commentaries on how God doesn't accept people with defects. Confusion among Christians follows suit. And I'm not making this up. Go online and look at sites where people make up commentaries. You know, atheists and people, they say how bad the God of the Bible is because he doesn't accept you because you've got a defect. And all these Christians that read these stupid things saying, oh, I'm not acceptable before God. And that is completely contrary to the word of God in context. As to why the Lord required people with such defects to be excluded from making these offerings, that was already answered. It was to maintain the typology in anticipation of Christ. As with the sacrifices, as with the furniture, the utensils, the conduct of the people, and so on, so it is with the physical infirmities of the people. As to whether these requirements are still in effect today, I will give you two different commentaries from two different widely accepted scholars both of whom I cite from time to time. I cite both of them. They're very good scholars, but I want you to listen carefully to the difference between these. Listen. The first one is from Adam Clark, somebody that I've actually cited today. I talked about him in Amos, uh, what was it, uh, 9 verse 15, I think. I cite him often. Okay, but listen to what he says. Let no man say this is a part of the Mosaic law, and we are not bound by it. He's speaking about the laws that we just looked at. It is an eternal law. Founded on reason, propriety, common sense, and absolute necessity. The priest, the prophet, the Christian minister is the representative of Jesus Christ. Let nothing in his person, carriage, or doctrine be unworthy of the personage he represents. A deformed person, though consummate in diplomatic wisdom, would never be employed as an ambassador by any enlightened court. If any fit person unblemished could possibly be procured. Now let's listen to Matthew Henry, ancient scholar as well, goes back several hundred years, completely different take on these verses, and you'll have to decide which is correct. No, I'm going to tell you. Anyway, here's what Matthew Henry says. As these priests were types of Christ, so all ministers must be followers of him, that their example may teach others to imitate the Savior. 
without blemish and separate from sinners. He executed his priestly office on earth. What manner of persons then should his ministers be? But all are, if Christians, spiritual priests. The minister especially is called to set a good example that the people may follow it. Our bodily infirmities, blessed be God, cannot now shut us out from his service, from these privileges, or from his heavenly glory. Many a healthful, beautiful soul is lodged in a feeble, deformed body. And those who may not be suited for the work of the ministry, like that guy that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, may serve God with comfort in other duties in his church. Adam Clark's commentary could not be more flawed both to the point of ridiculous and disgusting. Further, it bears in it one of the most legalistic, unrealistic, and mishandled evaluations of Scripture that I have ever read. Moses had a defect of the tongue, didn't he? As did Paul. Paul says, I'm not eloquent in person, implying that he had an ineloquent tongue. Right? Paul had a physical infirmity which necessitated others to tend to him. Adam Clark gets 1,001 demerits for his perverse commentary. The answer is that the law is annulled in Christ in its entirety. He has arbitrarily picked and chosen selected portions of it for his own perverse view on that which is clearly not moral in nature. I have highlighted this several times in this passage alone. The reason for the prohibitions is typology. As the typology is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then it is done. We cannot insert after Christ's ministry typology into what Christ has done as if it bears on what he did. Further, he uses, I'm talking about Adam Clark, the term ambassador when speaking of ministers. This is incorrect. The apostles were Christ's ambassadors and Paul had defects. Our instructions for choosing elders and deacons in the Gentile-led church age is defined by Paul in the pastoral epistles written to Timothy and to Titus. Those letters define who can minister and what their requirements are. We do not look back on a fulfilled, obsolete law to determine who can and who cannot minister before the Lord. Beloved, If you are in Christ, God sees you without any flaws, without any defects, and without any sin. He sees you through the accomplished work of his son. And when he does, he sees absolute perfection. Every spot is erased, every ding is filled in, every crack is smoothed over, and every misalignment is aligned. If you want to see how Christ sees his people, watch the music video on YouTube called Flawless. By mercy me, they do a great job of presenting it here. It's a little modern. If you don't like modern music, forget the music and just watch what they're doing. It is fantastic. If you never watch it, I'll tell you what they do. They start out the video, and they're standing there. These are musicians, and they are absolutely covered in paint. Every just splatter all over. There are instruments, the walls, everything is covered in paint. And they're singing the song about how you are accepted in Christ, and they back up the camera as they're singing and the paint is coming off of them. And by the time they get done with it, they are all pure spotless white, their instruments, everything, but they make a point in between each of the clips as they show a person that was defective in his marriage. They show a person who was defective with a uh, autism. They show a person that was defective here and here. And at the very end, it says all of them because of Christ are flawless, flawless. It's marvelous, but go watch it. If you have time, This is what we need to remember when we come to difficult passages like this. Inevitably, someone is bound to ask you about hard concepts like our last verses of the day. We can completely blow it like Adam Clark did. Or we can see the grace in Christ's face and we can be ready to share that message everywhere and every place. We are accepted because of Jesus. That is, if we belong to Jesus. And if you don't, you need to get that settled today, right? We had a brother, Don, die recently. He was young and healthy. You know, he's average age, healthy, and he got cancer and died. All right? We have people that are sick in this congregation. We don't know how long they're going to last. All right? We have our brother, Gene, who's now back at home with hospice. He's not going to last a couple more days, I don't think. I visited him a couple days ago. We've got all of these things that happen in our lives, and we don't know when our last breath is going to happen. Right? Dad had a stroke four or five years ago. If it wasn't for modern technology and somebody smart having oxygen at the restaurant, 
and him being promptly put on that, he wouldn't be here with us today. That would have been his end. Now, he's had a couple more years to listen to my sermons, right? Okay, all of these things come along for a reason in our lives, and there is a point where they will end. If you are not right with Christ, you need to do that today, and it's very simple. The gospel message is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, right? He came out of the grave. That's the gospel message. And then it tells us in Romans how to appropriate that. If you call on the name of the Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And when you do, guess what? You will be flawless. You're sitting there at home maybe right now watching the sermon, and you're thinking, oh, boy, I got, a, I got all this baggage in my life, and I don't know what to do about it. He doesn't care about that. He cares about your eternal soul. He'll take care of the baggage. What you need to do is get right with him. Accept Jesus Christ, and he will take care of all of it. And you can watch that video on, on YouTube by Mercy Me, and you'll see how God really sees you instead of how you think you are. All of this gross all over you, he cleans it all up. Let me tell you, it's marvelous. I got a closing verse for you today from Ecclesiastes 9. It's verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Good stuff. Next week is Leviticus 22, 1 through 33. In attending this sermon, you will not be bored. It's entitled, I am the Lord. That'll be our 35th Leviticus sermon. Okay, and I told you I'm going to try to think of a main point to give you every single week. We stressed one main point at the end of this, almost to the point of nauseous. So some people fell asleep, me telling you how perfect you are. But my main point for you is that regardless of genealogy, all defilement ceases in Christ. So if you came from a family of losers, you know, Christians love to say you have a generational curse over you. I hear this all the time in these charismatic churches. You need to get that curse removed from you. And guess what? Send in your money and, and it'll take care of it. All these crazy things. Genealogy, I don't care if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. It doesn't matter. And if you came from a line of losers that have been in jail every generation for the past 10,000 years, if you come to Christ, you are a new creation in Christ, and now it is up to you to live your life for Christ. You can break those bonds because he's broken them for you. So that's your lesson for today. Regardless of genealogy, all defilement ceases in Christ. Okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and purify you completely and wholly. And so follow him and trust him. And he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Quick poem and we're done. Suitable for the priesthood. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, what I have said and say to them, none shall defile himself among his people for the dead, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has no husband for her, he may defile himself, but for no other. Otherwise, he shall not defile himself, as I say, being a chief man among his people, to profane himself in any way. They shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards also, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. These are prohibited, as you now know. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. This shall never be, for they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy." They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman. This thing shall not be, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest to his God is holy. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God, these offerings to me. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, morality she has spurned, she profanes her father, she shall with fire be burned. He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, such as everyone knows, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head nor tear his clothes. Nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother too, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, as I now instruct you. For upon him is the consecration of the anointing oil of his God." I am the Lord, circumspectly he shall trod, and he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot too, these he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife, so he shall do, nor shall he profane among his people his posterity, 
for I, the Lord, sanctify him. And so this is how it shall be. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying these words to him. He was relaying. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God, no, even of his close relations. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame, or who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf when such with him is wrong, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or a scab or is a eunuch, they shall not apply. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. No such thing shall he proffer. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat of the bread of his God without reproach, both the most holy and the holy. Only he shall not go near the veil or the altar approach because he has a defect. Lest my sanctuaries he profane for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And so from these duties, he shall abstain. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons as well and to all the children of Israel. Lord, in you is found the perfect high priest, and because of you we are accepted before God. From the greatest of us, even to the least, to your greatness we shout and applaud. As a kingdom of priests, we shall minister before you, and it shall be so even for eternal days. Offering worthy sacrifices from hearts proven and true, yes, before your throne we shall give you eternal praise. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to our King. Glory to God in the highest. Here our voices sing. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are accepted in Christ and we are perfect and flawless in your eyes because of him. We thank you for that and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.